0: Let me pray for us. Let's get in the word together. Father God, thank you uh, that you come and meet with us this morning. And even as we uh, started today in your word, Lord, I could tell. I, I knew that you were doing work in me and calling me to stuff that was new um, and challenging. And uh, Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us set our hearts to meet with you this week. Holy Spirit, would you be in charge of this time, Lord, that you would do what you want to do? Help us respond to you uh, with love and obedience, and we pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Liz and I and our kids, for the first time since we got married, we've been married for 25 years, coming up in May. They said it wouldn't last, and uh, we were at my in-laws for a couple days, and they dug out the tape from our wedding, which I had never watched. I'd never seen it, and uh, so they pull that out, and we're watching that, and maybe come back to that day, and your wedding day is such a weird day because of all the preparation that goes into it, right? All the, all the, the prayers and conversations and details and plans and, and booking things and scheduling things that all come down to this moment. And I remember thinking, I, I was uh, really excited to be marrying Elizabeth, and um, I remember thinking, I want to look really good when she comes down the aisle. That was a big deal for me. Liz and I, I mean, if you kind of judged our attractiveness, Liz is here and I'm here and so, there's a lot of things I have to do to just get where she can see me. You know, a lot of pulleys and straps, creams, lotions, meditations. And so, on the day of our wedding, I was like, I want her to, like, think I look good. when she, I want her to be like, because I, I was really afraid she'd come down the aisle and go, you know what, forget it. You know, like, now that I see him in the light, you know, that's not going to work. And so... I'm really working hard day. I try to lose weight before. Anybody try to lose weight before your wedding? I was like, oh, I'm going to take off some weight ahead of time. And the pressure of being on a diet, I gained 15 pounds. And uh, I get my tux on. And But look, here's the truth. When my hair looks good, I look good. And when my hair doesn't look good, I don't look good. It's really all about this right here, okay? And uh, so day of, I'm all ready. My hair looks perfect. I'm like, I'm killing this. And I had one more thing to do. I had to drop off um, some... Uh, luggage at the hotel we were staying at uh, beforehand, because we were taking different cars, whatever, and I go to drop it off and the hotel's not there. We had booked our hotel reservation and I go to that hotel where I think it is and it's not there. I'm like, what? There's a different hotel there and I'm like, that's so strange. How can this not be the same? I'm, maybe I'm in the wrong part of town. This is 25 years ago, so what doesn't exist 25 years ago? GPS, cell phones, that ever, everyone didn't have cell phones then, I couldn't Google anything. You had to just ask people on the street who were incredibly unreliable, right? So I'm like, man, this is so weird. I'm like, I'm not in my hometown. So I'm driving around. I'm like, maybe I'm in the wrong spot. I'll go over here. I'll go over there. And this this is, uh, we got married on May 18th. It was the hottest May 18th ever. It was like 97 degrees. And it may not be obvious to you. I sweat like crazy. I sweat easily, right? I sweat in air conditioning, and I'm so I starting to sweat, and what's going on? My hair. Bigger, bigger. It's turning into the Italian fro. Gonna marry me. It's not gonna marry me. I finally figure out that they from the time we booked the reservation, they had changed the name of the hotel. I was in the right place, but it had the different sign, and I didn't figure that out until I finally I talked to someone on the street. They're like, oh yeah, that's the same place now. And now I'm late. I go flying back to the church, and run in, and we're about to like go out, right? And my hair is terrible, and it's like had sweated and dried. You know how that happens, you know? And it's sticking up, and I'm like, oh man! And I'm like, I oh, look ridiculous, and I'm all sweaty, and like a lot of my parts of my, you know, tucks. I had to make sure it stayed closed because there was a lot of things that had seeped through. It was terrible, and then um, and I'm like, she's gonna see my hair, and I'm done. She's gonna walk out and leave me. Her high school boyfriend was like waiting outside, ready to check in. He's like, I'm ready. My hair looks good. And, um, and so thankfully, one of my uh, uh, groomsmen from Jersey is ready for such an emergency. He pulls out like a two-pound tub of product. He goes, I got you. I don't even see it. I never look at myself in the mirror after this. <laughs> Hits it big. Goes large. Like my head went down, you know. And he, I got you. Don't worry about it. I take care of it. You look fantastic, right? All right, whatever, I'm nervous, we go, we go, and here comes Liz down the aisle with her father, and I am just, Liz looks like like the dawn of the first day. I mean, I'm just like, oh, that woman, I mean, people ask me, what did you, what did you think when she came down the aisle? I said, I, how could I be in the presence of such beauty? And I hope my father-in-law doesn't punch me, right? He's a very scary-looking guy. And, uh, and I, we asked her later, I said, what did you think when you saw Gary? And she goes, I just was wondering why he was wearing a helmet, right? <laughs> All that preparation. She married me with the helmet, right? Look, we put a lot of preparation in. We put preparation in for our wedding days. Uh, you get ready for your first day of school. If you're going to have people over your house for the career you're going to have. And when we prepare correctly, it, it, not only, um, it not only helps us feel better, it helps us experience and benefit from the moment or the season that we're preparing for. Well, next week we're going to celebrate the resurrection. It's this linchpin moment of human existence. And how we respond to the resurrection is the greatest determiner of our eternity. And so considering the resurrection is not something we want to do lightly. We don't want to wander into it, we don't want to sneak up on it, but it's in our calendar as a church and as a kingdom people on purpose. Because normally we run around doing whatever, right? And we kind of check in there and we meet with God a little bit here. And yet there's this place in our calendar where we're supposed to kind of stop and consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. The most important thing that ever happened when you stop and consider it. And you can't do it fast. You ever try to have a quiet moment with God really fast? And you're running around and you're like, okay, I'm gonna come down and meet with the Lord okay, now I go. It doesn't work like that. We have to prepare our hearts for that. We have to get ourselves quiet. We have to sit and meditate on the Scripture. We have to process out distractions. We live in such a busy, chaotic world, we need to take some time to really sit with the Lord. So I want to get us started on that today. And maybe you've already been in a season, and I hope you have been, of of quieting your heart and thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but what I want to do today is I want to walk through uh, the passages from Palm Sunday, the ones that tell that story, and have us kind of consider where we're at and ways that we can kind of maybe work through some obstacles or maybe misconceptions and then sit at the feet of Jesus for a little while, all right? There's lots of places where... um, That story is told, all the Gospels have that story, but we're going to look at it in John chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, or we'll have it up here. So John chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. A few months back, we looked at this passage, incredible, where Jesus raises Lazarus. He powerfully calls him out of the tomb. And that miracle doesn't just stay in that moment. It reverberates. If you raise a guy from the dead, it's a big deal. That story gets around. And so they're celebrating that now by throwing a dinner for Jesus. I love that this is what happens. Like imagine that conversation. What do you get a guy who raised you from the dead? You know, let's throw him a dinner. You know, I'll make I'll make the crab cakes, whatever we're gonna do. Right? This probably probably wouldn't eat shellfish. All right, that's in there. all right. So they throw this dinner from Jesus, and Martha is working as always, and we'll find out where Mary is. But where's Lazarus, the guy who got la- raised from the dead? He's laying down. Can't you look at Martha being like, would it kill you to help me, Lazarus? You can't get up a little bit. Okay, I guess I'll work. Right. And then we come to Mary, and Mary's doing something that's going to create some controversy. Here's verse 3 of chapter 12. It says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Mary pours out her expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, and Judas, and he's right, says it's worth about a year's wages. And she wipes his feet with her hair, and the fragrance fills the room. It's a lot of perfume, a pint of perfume. And this is worship from Mary. Now, where does she have a a perfume that's worth a year's wages? We don't know. We don't know if they're wealthy people, but most likely it's probably a, fairly, a family heirloom. It's something that's been passed down in their family as the valuable thing that they have, like how a family might save a piece of jewelry or something, and that's their thing they're going to use when things go rotten, right? This is how I could sell this. This is something we use as our security, and she takes all of it and pours it out on Jesus. This is her worship. But while she's doing this, Judas questions her. He says, well, this is a waste. Why are we wasting a year's wages on Jesus' feet? Let's give it to the poor. And John, who's writing this story down later, tells us the motive behind Judas' words. Judas doesn't really want the money to go to the poor. He's the money holder for the group. He's the kind of person who makes themselves the banker in Monopoly. Why do people make themselves the banker in Monopoly? Is it to ensure that a fair and equitable distribution of the cash is done? No. Why do people make themselves the banker? To steal, right? Think we don't know you people who are bankers in Monopoly, right? He's hoping to have the perfume sold so he can take a little taste, so he can skim some off the top. So Mary's worship of Jesus is questioned. And in the moment, those that are there, except for Jesus, they don't know the real reason that Judas wants the perfume sold. And his argument makes some sense. I remember making this argument myself. Liz and I, were, we were somewhere in a, 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 in a town that was not a well-off town. It was a poor town, and in the middle of this town was this beautiful church. Ornate, right? With gold-trim beautiful statues. Maybe you've seen this, right? And You're like, man, it's a gore. and I remember thinking while I was there, what Christians made this decision? I mean, come on, people. Why are we building this beautiful building when you have all these poor people? Why wasn't, I remember thinking, why wasn't this money used to put in a food pantry or a clothing closet or an orphanage? Why are we, why, why so decorative? Is God impressed? And I sat there thinking, who, what Christians made this decision. Maybe you've thought about something like that. Why is this happening or or that happening, right? Why would not this money used to serve the poor? But Jesus defends Mary. What Judas says makes sense, right? It's an argument I may have made, but Jesus defends Mary. And he says one of those things that's hard for us to grasp. He tells us she was meant to do this that he's being anointed for his burial, which is coming soon, even though other people don't know it. He says, her actions are appropriate. And then he says this thing, you will always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Now I got to tell you, if anyone else said that, that would be arrogant, right? It'd be cruel, wouldn't it? But Jesus has too much credential for us to question him. We can't question Jesus' commitment to the poor. He spent his whole ministry taking care of the poor. Right, he always stayed in the poor places. He gave himself the the seat of least honor. He feeds people. He heals people. He casts out demons. He lifts up the oppressed. If anyone knows how to serve the poor, it's Jesus. We can't question him. We're like, well, what's he doing then? And so Jesus is actually saying something a little different. He goes, you're always going to have the poor with you. He's saying, if you want to help the poor, go ahead. If If you're so concerned about helping the poor, and you're wondering about how she's doing her thing, go ahead. I imagine if Jesus was standing next to me in this town that needed help and I was criticizing this building, he would have said, if you want to help these people, go ahead. They can deal with me on what they did with their resources. How about you deal with me about what you do with yours? You got money in your pocket. Did you walk down and go help somebody? Are you starting an orphanage? Are you giving to the food pantry or are you just criticizing what someone else is doing? He goes, shut up, right? He says, back off of Mary, she knows what she's doing. She's part of a larger story. He says, look, you're always going to have opportunities to serve the poor, but there's a unique thing happening with Jesus. He's not going to last long in this scenario. His hour is approaching. Meanwhile, verse 9, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. Jesus had become quite famous. The crowds gather around him, and they want to see the guy who came back from the dead. Everybody is celebrating. Not everybody is celebrating. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. What's wrong with this picture? Let's kill Lazarus. Can you imagine Jesus going like, go ahead, kill him. And back. Right? (laughs) Let's kill Lazarus. Jesus is like, and back. I just did it once. It's not that hard, Nick. Do behind my back, and back. And what else are they doing? They're ignoring the evidence that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They skip that part. They're like, man, this resurrection of Lazarus is very inconvenient for us. It's gonna make us look bad. People are following the guy who can raise the dead. Instead of us. I mean, can you imagine people following someone who's going to raise from the dead instead of us corrupt religious leaders who think we know everything? This is ridiculous. We have to teach the people better. Why would they follow someone just because he raised someone from the dead? Like, that's so hard, right? You know what we'll do. We'll kill that guy. Right? It's kind of pointless, right? The leadership is worked up. Their grip on power is loosening. The crowds are following Jesus. Verse 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Now, the palm branches were a national symbol for Israel. They waved them in celebration. It was even uh, stamped on their coins. And palms were easy to find. Date palms are everywhere in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus had come from Bethany, just a couple miles away, and when he arrives, there's this huge crowd there. Why? Because it's Passover week. On Passover week, people would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Uh, The the historian Josephus tells us that one of those Passover weeks, they did like a a count of the crowd, and they came up with 2.7 million people. Now, I don't know if he's right or how that works, but a lot of people are in Jerusalem. Huge crowds of Jews are there. Now remember, the Jews are being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans are containing, have military control. How many Romans are in Jerusalem as soldiers? I don't know. Is it two million? Nope. Maybe they have a few thousand soldiers, and you've got millions of Jews who have come for the festival. And then here comes Jesus from Bethany. A guy who can raise people from the dead and feed crowds and walk on water and calm the storm and cast out demons, and they're thinking, this is an opportunity. And so as he comes up, they start shouting, and the words they're shouting come directly from Psalm 118, and everyone knew Psalm 118 because it was one of the ones, it was like a a thing they sang at their festivals. It was like common words to their worship songs. They see him coming, and they start shouting it. Now, here's the thing. Hosanna literally means give salvation now. They're trying to prop up Jesus as king. They see him coming, and they're like, give salvation now. Give salvation now. What do they want? They want rebellion. How do we know that? Because they did it before this, and they did it after this. They wanted to be free of the Roman oppression. And they revolt against Rome a number of times, sometimes kind of successfully. And they see Jesus coming, and they're like, that's it. Here's the king. Blessed is the king of Israel. Who's supposed to be in charge of Israel, according to the Romans? Caesar. And now they're propping up Jesus, not as Messiah, but as warrior king who's going to throw off the Romans. Give salvation now. Give salvation now. And they go get their national symbol. It's like they're waving flags. And here comes Jesus. Give salvation now. Let's go to war. Let's go to war. You can imagine the scene. How's Jesus going to handle this? Shouting crowd. He's got no megaphone. What's he going to do with this? Verse 14. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. This is a weird move. If you're coming and you want to be king and lead a rebellion, what do you come in riding? A war horse. Or if you can get one, an elephant, because that's awesome, right? But you come in riding a war horse. You brandish your sword. Give salvation now. Let's go get them. Let's throw off Rome. Remember a few different times they've tried to make Jesus king? Let's follow this guy. He's got the crowds. Everyone loves him, right? But Jesus instead goes and gets a donkey. Now, it's not in this story, but in the other Gospels it tells us that he set the donkey up. Beforehand, he says, hey, go to this place. There's a donkey there that's never been ridden. Bring this donkey over here. I don't know how tough you can look riding on a donkey, but not that tough. You're not up here like you would be on a horse. You're down here. The horse comes in. The donkey's like right. So Jesus purposely lowers himself. Why? We find out. It tells us. John tells us this quote from Zechariah 9:9. Let me read you Zechariah 9:9. It says, "Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Good so far. Lowly." and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Did you hear that? The crowd wants warrior King Jesus to come in on his horse with his sword. Jesus goes, Let me get on a donkey and let me come in humble because I'm not coming to start a war. I'm coming to bring peace. He's coming to proclaim peace. Look, they could have overwhelmed Rome, but Jesus echoes Zechariah 9 and comes in humility. He's not the king they're expecting. He's not coming to lead a war, but to die to make peace i got to tell you, this made me re-examine some stuff from when I was a kid. Uh, We would occasionally uh, go to a traditional church when I was a kid, and on Palm Sunday, what did we have? Palms. And what did we do? Hosanna, right? Hosanna, give salvation now. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. Is this crowd the crowd of true worshipers? True worshipers wouldn't turn into the angry mob in four days, but these guys did. They said, Jesus, we want you to be this. Jesus says, I'm not that. I'm something you weren't expecting. We want to throw back Rome and have political power. I want to bring peace to the earth. Let's have a victory parade where you lead us in war. How about you pick up your cross and follow me? Do you see the dichotomy there, Right? Verse 16, this wasn't easy for his disciples to understand. He says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, they realized that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Even his disciples don't really get it. Everyone's caught up in this. They're the same people, even after the resurrection, they say to Jesus, Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're in this group too. They want that, they want the throwing off of political oppression. So Jesus rides in on a donkey, but the crowd surges on. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. His miracles had gone ahead of him. The crowds who were gathering for Passover are now instead turned to him. Everyone is ready for something to happen, except the Pharisees. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is a great setup for where we're going to go next week. The Pharisees' jealousy is going to swell against Jesus. And before a week has passed, they're going to take their own action. Judas, who's been rebuked when he tried to correct Mary, well, he's going to make his move. The Pharisees are going to make theirs. The crowd, which is celebrating Jesus and hoping to make him king, They're going to turn into a very different kind of crowd. But that's next week. Today I want us to sit with this story for a minute. And I want us to think about the different characters in this story and and imagine ourselves in their place. And and maybe there's something in one of those characters that you go, that's who I am in this story. Maybe there's something in there that challenges us. And I, I want to think about four different characters in this story. The first character in this story I want to talk about is the crowd. The crowd, they're cheering, adoring, they're celebrating Jesus, they're waving their palm fronds. Can you imagine yourself in that crowd, being part of that and cheering for Jesus? I feel that, right? I want Jesus to be my hero and my champion, but there's a warning here, right? The crowd wanted Jesus, yes, but they wanted Him to be their kind of Savior. And I get that too. Sometimes I want Jesus to do what I want instead of the other way around. You ever been there? Sometimes I want to win more than I want Jesus to win. The crowd is with Jesus for the parade, and they hope for the overthrow of Rome, but they disappear when the call becomes about sacrifice and suffering. Am I just a member of the crowd who's rooting for my version of the Savior to come, and I'm unwilling to accept that he's not who I want him to be? Then we have the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees are afraid of what Jesus might take from them. They're afraid for their power and their influence, and they ignore the truth about Jesus, and they fiercely defend their own position, their own righteousness. Again, this is a move I understand. After I heard the gospel, I went to this time of of questioning and and researching, and I, I wanted to find out if it was true what they said about Jesus, if he'd really been resurrected... And after several months of looking into this and reading the Bible and asking questions, I came to this place of going, I believe that Jesus was really resurrected. And boy, that became a problem for me. Because I knew, I understood that if I accept Him as Savior, if I worship Him as Savior, that it was going to cost me something. I actually made a physical list of the things that it would cost me. And I had some misconceptions about what it meant to be a Christ follower. For whatever reason, I thought, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to go to the airport and hand out flowers. I don't know why I thought that. But I had this idea of like religious extremists, and like I'm going to have to wear robes. I don't look good in robes. They look like moo-moos on me. I'm going to have to hand out flowers. I may end up like, as a missionary in Africa. Like, that's, that was the only picture I had of religious people. I didn't grow up with one. And I'm like, man, all my plans, all my dreams, and to be honest, all my sin was something that was on the line if I started to follow Jesus. And maybe you've had that conversation with him, right? And these two things, the truth about who Jesus was and what it would cost me, they were in opposition. Was I willing to give up my plans, my goals, my dream, my sin in order to receive the truth about Jesus? Maybe you're in that spot right now, and I want want to give you uh, some advice. If you're in that place where you understand that following Jesus is this total surrender, and you're afraid of what you're going to lose, I was in that spot. Here's what I can tell you. It'll cost you more than you think. All the things that you list that you think you're going to have to give away, it'll cost you more than that. Jesus doesn't just want the stuff you can think of now. He wants it all. He wants every moment of every day. He wants every moment of your future. He wants every plan and dream you ever had. He wants all your history. He wants all your right now. He wants all your sin. He wants all your potential. He wants everything. You have undercounted the cost of following Jesus, I guarantee it. I know I did. Can you imagine, right, I thought, I'm going to end up in airports handing out flowers and telling people about Jesus. Can you imagine if I end up having to talk about Jesus like week after week for years and years after that? Right? So if you're considering Christ and you're wondering, will it cost me this? Will it cost me that? Yes, it will. I guarantee you, you've undercalculated what it will cost. But you've also undercalculated what you receive. When you receive Jesus, you get it all. All the eternity, all the blessing, all the purpose, all the identity, all the real you. I like to say when, I, when you come to Christ, you become more of the real you. You become the you that you were designed to be in the beginning. I had no idea who I really was until I met Jesus. So if you're afraid of giving up something, yeah, you'll have to give that up and more but there's such a greater blessing behind it. If only the Pharisees, and some of them did, had understood that if they surrendered the power they were holding on to, they could have known an eternity of blessing. So you have the crowd, you've got the Pharisees, and now you've got Judas. Here's the thing about Judas. He looks like a disciple. He follows Jesus around. He says things that sound good, even pious. Have you ever said something just to sound holy? Just me. The rest of you are liars and cheats and thieves, okay? There's a desire to be self-righteous. Jesus, Ju- Judas wants to use Jesus to get what he wants. In this spot, he wanted Jesus' influence to make him wealthy. He sees Jesus as a cash cow. This guy does a miracle. We take a nice offering. I get my cut because it's hard to hold the money bag. And he becomes known for his betrayal, but it didn't start on the day he sold Jesus out. It started way before that. It started with his self-righteousness. You know why you steal money from the money bag? Because you think you deserve it. That's why you steal it. Because you think you're better than other people. And over the years, many people have used Jesus for their own sinful ends. They've used Jesus to justify racism, to advance a political agenda, and the whole time wrapping themselves up in self-righteousness. Ask the Lord this in your life. I know I, I, know I have done this. I have torn down other people in my mind, sometimes with my words, so that I could feel more holy. I have criticized the way other Christians have done things so that I could feel more self-righteous. I have used the the Scripture to justify things that I did. New Hope, let us repent of this. If we are using Jesus for our own ends, we have it backwards. We're making Him into a tool in our hands instead of the other way around if that's you, if you recognize any of that in your heart, if God convicts you of that like He did in me, repent. Turn from that sin. Thank God for forgiveness and live the way He calls you to in that area. We've got the crowd. They want the wrong Jesus. They want a different kind of Savior. We've got the Pharisees who are afraid of being what's taken from them. We've got Judas who's trying to use Jesus for his own ends. This is a terrible bunch of characters. Thank God we have Mary. Finally, we have Mary. And Mary embodies the life of a worshiper. She's someone who surrenders all, who worships unashamedly, who humbles herself. Now look, there's a warning here for Mary as well. When we worship like Mary, we'll face opposition. There's a real devil who really comes after us. You'll face criticism if you worship like Mary. Sometimes openly people will tell you you're doing it wrong, sometimes just behind your back. Some people who pretend holiness will tell you that you're doing things wrong. But notice where Mary is. Where's Mary in this story? She's at the feet of Jesus. She's fixed on Jesus. And does she, when when Judas comes and goes, you know, we should have sold that perfume. Mary is such a waste. Does Mary go, shut up, Judas! She doesn't do that. I'm sure she wanted to. Right? Who defends her? Jesus does. Mary's job: fix eyes on Jesus. Mary's job: serve Jesus. Mary's job: pour it out for Jesus. Jesus comes to her defense. Let us emulate that. Let us be people who sit at the feet of Jesus. So this is a week of preparation for us. And as I think about these different characters in the story, I think I want to give something valuable to the kingdom this week. It doesn't have to be financial. It can be maybe a way my heart is moved to surrender something in my time or, or my thinking. Here, here's what God did with me. And I know this is going to sound silly. So I, I come to the Lord and I said, Lord, I want to prepare myself to appreciate the resurrection and think on the death of Jesus this week. And I know there's some things in my life that are obstacles to that. And I'm waiting for the Lord to be like, I want you to give this money over there. And I was kind of hoping for that. It's Probably the easiest thing for me to do is to write a check, Right? Here you go. I gave that, man. I sacrificed. And I'm talking to the Lord about this, and He's like, "You know what I want from you? You know what I want in trade this week? You know what I want you to sacrifice? You're holding on to too tightly." And I'm like, scared. I'm like, what? He goes, "I want YouTube." And I was like, huh? And here's the thing, okay? And I'll, I'm embarrassed of this. I'm sure many of you will be embarrassed of this if this if you had to tell this story. I don't know, whenever I'm like in between stuff, I'll just go and like waste 26 minutes on YouTube learning about Korean street food. I don't know why, I'm just looking for something. Or, oh, here's how cranberries are harvested. It's like the dumbest thing in the world. And yet I fill in all these gaps in between events or phone calls or meetings or whatever, conversations with real people, with all this uselessness. And the Lord spoke to me. He's like, I want that. I want the in between spaces. I want you to come and spend that time with me. Come read through the Gospels this week. Think on the resurrection. Sit in quiet meditation. Write out a prayer list. Be grateful for stuff. Talk to a real person about me. Because that's what I want for this week. And you know how I knew it was from the Lord? I tried to talk myself out of it like six times. I was like, YouTube's not bad. I like that guy who cooks. I used it for a sermon illustration, Lord. Doesn't that count? He's like, shut up, I want YouTube." For whatever reason, that's become a thing for me that's keeping me from spending time with the Lord. I'm not saying I don't have my devotionals. Days I have my devotionals, it's weird. I'll have my devotional and I'll check it off the list. I have my devotional. Now I'm going to go and watch this stupid video. And God's like, no, 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 I I want it all. I want the in-between spaces. And so God led me to that this week. And I want to encourage you is that we're in a week of preparation to ask the Lord if there's something He wants from you. If there's a, a piece of a sacrifice. Maybe, maybe it's giving up your morning coffee and giving that money to compassion. Maybe it's a relationship He wants you to lean into. Maybe it's time with Him that you haven't been spending. But I want to encourage you to give Him the opportunity to speak to you on this. Lord, would you show me how to be with you this week? how to prepare my heart, how to understand what's in me and what's in our world so that I really appreciate the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me give this week to, to thinking on that, letting it shift in me, my priorities, my values. We have a lot of people we can be in this story, but I pray that we'd be people like Mary, people who sit at the feet of Jesus, And give him our surrendered worship, taking that valuable thing that we have and pouring it out on his feet. Let me pray that for us. Father God, thank you that you continue to whisper to me over and over again come see me, come see me, come see me. And Lord, I pray against the obstacles that come in the way of that, the distractions and the rationalizations and the busyness, Lord. And I pray for me and for all of us in this room and those who are watching today, Lord, that just we'd hear that call, come see me. Come sit at my feet. Surrender those things that you've been holding on to tightly and pour them at my feet. Let us be worshipers who worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you that you came to rescue us. You didn't leave us in our sin. Lord, we love you. We trust you we pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, I pray that you just have a, a, a reflective and powerful holy week this week. Have a great Sunday.